Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Max Verstappen wins for the 19th and final time in 2023 in yet another dominant display in the season closer at Yas Marina. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 22, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. There was a time, a very brief time, during which Max Verstappen looked unlikely to dominate Abu Dhabi. It was Saturday practice, coming after a very disrupted Friday, and neither he nor the team could figure out why the RV19 wasn't working around the well-understood Yas Marina circuit. Going into qualifying, pole appeared to be anyone's game. But some pre-quali setup tweaks cured the problem, and on the Dutchman marched to pole position, to the lead off the line, and to a 17th victory for the season. Thrown in was the record for most laps led in one campaign, 1,003. Behind him, Charles Leclerc attempted to nose Ferrari ahead of Mercedes for second in the constructors' standings with some bizarre late-race tactics that involved willingly ceding second place to Sergio Perez. But it was all a bit of a sideshow to Max Verstappen and Red Bull Racing's domination. To sum up a very Verstappen ending to a very Verstappen season, I'm joined by Stuart Codling, editor of GP Racing Magazine. Codders, how are you going? Uh, I'm, I'm fine, thank you. Um, in in as, as, as fine as one can be after two 1am finishes uh, over the past couple of days. And rather tiresomely, before going to bed last night, I phoned my wife, as you do, um, in the <laughs> UK. And um, I got the impression she'd been at the wine because during the course of the conversation, she twice asked me how the race was. And here I am in a dry country, unable to unwind after a long working day with uh, a, a glass of the fine red stuff. So that was irksome. Well, not too long now till you can get home and you can partake in all the kinds of ends of season festivities you may like. Or maybe that's just a reflection on the memorability of the race. It could go either way. It wasn't one of the worst Abu Dhabi Grand Prix we've had. It was certainly set up in an interesting way. Even practice was kind of interesting in a strange way. We'll get to the crashes and things that happen in a moment. But this is the traditional season, season closing venue now. It's very well established Abu Dhabi. To your mind, considering the changes we've had in the last couple of years at this track, is a little bit more befitting the occasion of a final race venue, notwithstanding we didn't get any kind of showdown this weekend? Or is that more to do with the cars? How do you reflect on Abu Dhabi as the, the last round of the season? Well, you know, they say you can't polish a turd, but you can <laughs> roll it in glitter. And I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, with, with, the, with the light show you get at the end and the, the, the glittery um, <laughs> hotel that uh, has the wonderful light show and the floodlit, they, they've, they'd already rolled this turd in glitter before they started <laughs> trying to sort the problems out. And yeah, they have reprofiled a couple of corners, but I don't think they've addressed the fundamental problem with the Abu Dhabi circuit, um, which is a conceptual one. It dates from the Herman Tilke school of thought that to engineer exciting races, you had long straights punctuated by slow corners with 
fiddly off-camber profiles. So you had a little bit of peril under braking. There's, you know, will will the will the camber spit you off? Won't it? A little bit of peril under traction. Will the camber spit you off? Won't it? And and the idea was to sort of create conditions where drivers might make mistakes. But the trouble is, these are the best drivers in the world, and as I. I interviewed Herman Tilker a long time ago and he did admit you know they, they don't make mistakes it was a, he didn't go as far as saying it was a dumb idea but he said <laughs> that that's my issue um pe- people people who do club races make mistakes Formula One drivers <laughs> tend not to uh, even the ones who are uh, unfairly derided in the in the eyes of many so really what this circuit needs is a complete resurface and getting rid of all those adverse camber bits because they actually militate um, against good racing in the modern era because the current Pirelli tyres don't like sliding or overheating and what you get when you have off camber corners you, you, you're inclined to slide so um, it, it actually sets up a, a tedious tyre conservation race which is what we've seen out there over the past 10 years I'd say. Remarkable considering the number of different layouts of this track as well, and none of them seems to have really been a, a massive improvement or even a good alternative. So we'll wait and see if they can, I don't know, demolish some buildings and some barriers and ever shape this into a better purpose-built venue. But like you say, some of the changes don't have to be absolutely massive. Some camber changes, well, you never know what that might change. Now, we did have a disrupted build-up to this practice session, despite the fact everyone knowing it quite well lost a lot of practice time. The first one, maybe this is an indicator of just how... Valuable the teams see their time in Abu Dhabi, but nine teams sent 10 reserve or rookie inexperienced drivers out in first practice. That obviously cost a whole bunch of full-time drivers time in the car. And then Carlos Sainz and Nico Hulkenberg did their best to kind kind of get second practice called off with a variety of crashes. We got more or less 16 valuable minutes in that session, leaving us only with the daytime session on Saturday. Considering how well the teams do know this track, were you surprised how difficult some of them found them to get things right thinking in particular of Max Verstappen ahead of qualifying not really being settled on a, a setup that could have maybe in an alternative universe cost him full position uh, <clears throat> yeah pardon my throat um the uh yeah as, as 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 we said before you hit record um the people who went to Las Vegas and were exhausted have been passing around their germs which is uh, <laughs> not the sort of caring and sharing I'd like to uh encourage um I have no sympathy whatsoever for teams who have uh failed to give young drivers the um the opportunities that are enshrined in the rules uh, until the final race of the season. And here's looking at you, Red Bull. They didn't let anyone in the car until right at the end of the year. And so that was practice one, a write-off for them. So they're already creating the preconditions for um, it not going well if there's a shunt in FP2. Um, The science shunt was very bizarre. Uh, We went for a run around the circuit in the evening and – that corner, you could barely see the bump. You could certainly see the marks he'd left on the track. <laughs> um, the the worst bump was kind of like a it, like a teenager's acne pimple uh, around <laughs> sort of turn two three that they were busy scraping and filling as as I sort of uh, thundered and coughed and harumphed up that small incline there. Um, and yeah, I, what 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 really surprised me more was um, Nico Hulkenberg's peculiar 
what happened there, Shunt, uh, at the beginning of his first actual timed lap where he rotated into the barrier at turn one. So, yeah, did it compromise Max? Maybe a little bit. He was certainly quite tetchy to get out of the pit lane, which uh, that's a whole soap opera I don't think we need to get into because that would take <laughs> an hour of he said, she said. But um, that that car, they've they've tuned it so that they get good race pace out of it and that's paid dividends uh, throughout the season. And then they kind of rely on Max's ability to pull one lap out of the bag to pop it on pole. And and that's what happened. They were maybe a little bit surprised, but as we'll probably get to later, Max has, although he says he's not interested in records, he's been quietly keeping an eye on which ones he's about to break. That's no bad thing, I suppose. Well, let's look at the way he won this race uh, in yet another record-breaking fashion. There was some sparring on the first lap with Charles Leclerc. Max Verstappen was never really subsequently challenged after that. I feel like you could almost summarise many races this season in exactly the same terms. Gently build up the gap over the course of the race. Preempted the undercut, which was relatively strong here, um, before Charles Leclerc did, pitting on lap 16. Then ran a very long middle stint, but not so much to ensure that he had the optimum strategy to win the race, although it was already in hand at that point. More to do with the number of laps he led over a season. Surely one of the more obscure records we'll ever talk about in Formula 1. It sometimes felt like, Stuart, that this year Verstappen Red Bull have been playing with everyone. Maybe never quite as clearly as this. Should this be concerning for anyone who thinks that next year might be a little bit closer that he still won by 17 seconds playing an entirely different game? Yeah, um... Considering Red Bull have switched off development on this car since mid-season and have still kept their advantage, that is a little bit worrying. And more so that the other teams are still playing catch-up, not in terms, not just in terms of making the DRS sing, achieving the nice switch, as they call it, but also in terms of engineering a car that's sympathetic to its tyres. So what we've seen time and time again this season is Max even on the rare occasions where he's not on pole and Charles Leclerc is, he'll either get a brilliant start and be first into the first corner, or he just spends those first two or three laps gently bringing in the tyres. And what he's doing there is banking tyre life that he can then stretch out to uh, the in, in tire, to, to build a longer stint. So imagine your tyre life is, is kind of like a sugar lump. And um, the... Other drivers are taking a much more intensive lick of that sugar lump <laughs> over the first couple of laps as they jockey for position, whereas um, Max just sort of dips into it like a, like a cat first going to the milk bowl. It's just a delicate little tip of the end of the tongue. There we go. I don't need all of it right now. Uh, so it, it makes sometimes makes for an exciting-looking first couple of laps, for instance, here in Abu Dhabi where Charles Leclerc was, was really going for him and then pulling back from the brink because he didn't want to bin it and cost his mechanics their nice winter holiday uh, with the bonus. So it, it it looked superficially exciting, but Max was always in control. And then he just, as you say, builds the gap. And even at a circuit like this, where the, the undercut is powerful, we saw a, a lot of either swaps for position or people all of a sudden destroying gaps uh, ahead of them, uh, when, when especially at the first stops. Um, you... you all he has to do is account for that and just stretch gently away. And this really, really was a time management race. I remember at one point noticing, I just flipped through my notes here. Yeah, it was lap 33. They'd all been kind of lapping in the one minute, 30 second bracket. And then all of a sudden, Max randomly did a mid 129. And 
it was like watching watching one of those domino rally things. Uh, <laughs> every single driver behind him all of a sudden did a mid-129 until Carlos Sainz, who was, I think, in 12th place at that point. Uh, and, and so everyone was going slower than they could have done. It wasn't absurd like that Monaco Grand Prix a few years ago when they had the hypersoft tyres and everyone was sort of driving around at the speed of an electric milk float from the 1970s. <laughs> but uh, it, it, that no... The, the ideal strategy here is always a one-stop and Pirelli have just pushed it as far as they can go to make it a two-stop. And, and I think they were surprised and a little bit disappointed that what, what eventuated was pretty much everyone going on a two-stop. They, they kind of wanted a, a bit more of a half-and-half half mix. So it was a thousand laps, more than a thousand laps led in the end for Max Verstappen, yet another achievement to cap off the very many else that he's had or very many others that he's had so far this season. We'll talk a little bit about some of the other teams in a second, but thinking about the way Red Bull has managed this season, it made quite a big deal about the development the restrictions that have been applied to it because of the cost cap breaches and Christian Horner is now suggesting, as he already suggested, it would only be felt at the end of this year. He's now suggesting it'll only be felt next year. Is it safe to say at this point that these uh, penalties for breaching the cost cap have not really had much of an effect at all? Can we really expect them to be having, to be felt by Red Bull next season? Yeah, I've started mentally hitting mute whenever uh, Christian <laughs> Horner starts being a bit of a Karen. Um, I think everyone else should be worried that now that the, the really big hit from the penalty for the budget cap infringement, uh, which of course was all the fault of journalists eating sandwiches in the Red Bull motorhome <laughs> that they're not allowed into. I'd love to know how that, that's the ultimate Schrodinger's cat, the uh, sandwiches in the Red Bull motorhome, but I'm digressing. Um, I, I don't think I've been invited into the Red Bull motorhome for comestibles for about 10 years. I'm digressing again. Anyhow, yes, it is simply not the case that they're bringing a disadvantage forward into next year now because the the car concept already has a baked-in advantage. They've not developed this car since mid-season. Um, so they are already sitting on a sizable advantage. And because we're now two seasons into this technical package, the returns are going to diminish. So I think the only hope for the others is that there is some sort of ceiling for performance and that Red Bull is kind of approaching that ceiling. But even the other teams have quite a long way to go. You know, I've mentioned the people struggling to find the switch that makes the, the DRS work at its maximum effectiveness like Red Bull does. That's not just a case of a, a lot of the um, so-called tech experts who pontificate on social media particularly <laughs> go on about the beam wing of the, the lower beam wing of the Red Bull. And it's not just that. It's all the other bits. It's the so-called cake tin uh, around the, um, the the rear brake shroud and all the other little bits of furniture around the back of the floor, the bits in front of the back of the floor that um, condition the airflow towards the rear wing that help to make and optimize the DRS switch. So there's a lot of work going into doing that. And Red Bull have got there, other people haven't yet. And when you think that, say, Mercedes are now going for a completely new car concept next season, they're effectively two years behind. Grim for anyone hoping for some catch-up from some of the grander teams, although maybe a little bit more optimism among McLaren, for example, which I guess is a former grand team. We'll see if they can close the gap next year. There is Mercedes and Ferrari to pick two teams that are battling to be, I guess, 
the de facto heir to Red Bull Racing next season. Obviously, finishing second doesn't entail that for certain, but I guess it gives them a bit of a good feeling going into the off-season break. They were competing for second in the Constructors' Championship and separated by just four points ahead of this round. And as is sometimes the case in Abu Dhabi, maybe this is the only selling point of the venue, purely by being last, is sometimes we get situations where the teams and the drivers focus less actually on the overall race and more just on their direct rival. Uh, And sometimes that gives us some unusual situations, this being one of them. Before we look at that slightly bizarre end to this race with Charles Leclerc and Sergio Perez, I thought looking at Ferrari's approach to this Grand Prix overall, it was kind of bold giving George Russell and Lando Norris undercuts at both pit stops and trusting that they could get Leclerc ahead just uh, after both, and ultimately he finished second. This time last year, we were talking a lot about Ferrari's strategy being the biggest weakness, the biggest thing they needed to improve on. That, I guess, didn't end up to be necessarily the case this year. But how do you look back on the way that they have improved in that aspect this season? Was Abu Dhabi a bit of a heartening note in that regard? Yeah, their execution's been a lot better. I think Singapore was the high point where um, not only did they get... You know, to to secure the win required both drivers to buy into the idea that one of them was definitely not going to win after qualifying, give or take whatever happened on the first lap. So that level of teamwork and the vision to get a for for one driver to achieve a very good qualifying position at a circuit where they had the advantage temporarily over Red Bull and then not involving, not getting involved in a squabble and having one car effectively sort of play rear gunner for the other one. Um, that was beautifully executed. Here there was a little bit of a wobble, I think. <clears throat> Things didn't quite pan out as they wanted. With Leclerc, it did. I think they maximised what was possible with the car. With Science, I think they struggled a bit. They clearly wanted to do a one-stop. Fred Vasseur the team principal after the race said that they wanted to go to lap 30, 35 with his first set of tires. And because he started, I think Carlos was one of just three drivers to start on the hard compound tires with a view to long first stint and then go onto the mediums after lap 30 and go to the end. That just didn't happen. He made two, two or three positions on the first lap and then didn't go forward at all. So they then had to make a very hard decision and you can read this one of both ways. You could say, okay, it was desperation or um, pragmatic. Let's assume it was pragmatic. They thought, let's give him some clear air and fresh tires. Let's see what he can do with that. And unfortunately, the speed wasn't in the car. So they ended up just basically having to cross their fingers and hoping there'd be a safety car. And that then didn't happen. You have to say, though, that Aston Martin, who were trying the same thing with Lance Stroll and also gave up on it um, the lap before Ferrari abandoned it, managed to get Lance to 10th place and he did the last 16 laps on the mediums and managed to make a bit of progress. So maybe there was a little bit of car in it, uh, maybe a little bit of damage left over uh, from the, the Friday shunt or maybe just you know when you've put a car together that has been that broken, something's not right about it. You know, you don't always get the same car back that you sent into the wall. And considering it's two weeks in a row, two weekends in a row now as well, that Ferrari's had to rebuild the car, maybe not outside the realms of possibility that all was not well by the time they got to qualifying and then the race with Carlos Sainz's car. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. 
Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see, they've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo Jo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star, a new series from Crowd Network. Let's look at that strange situation at the very end of the Grand Prix. The points were being calculated in the final laps. Leclerc in second and Russell in third weren't, wasn't going to create enough of a point swing to move Ferrari to second in the championship. But Sergio Perez was coming up the field late and he looked good to maybe finish around about third, maybe even second. But he was carrying a five-second penalty for that a clumsy overtaking attempt on Lando Norris, I guess we can call it. And then we got this situation where Leclerc dropped back to try and give Perez a clean run to second place and some DRS and some slipstream to try and build that five-second buffer to Russell fell short by around 1.1 seconds. I can't think of another situation in which a driver has willingly waved past another for position like this. Is this perhaps a, a first in Formula One? And what did you think of the way Leclerc approached this end? We don't often think about him having a, such a global view of a race as this. Was was that impressive, the way he tried to deal with this in, in, in the cockpit? Yeah, because usually Charles Leclerc is the advice taker rather than the advice giver, isn't he? So it's good to see him seize the moment, as it were, and... Uh, uh, take some initiative and start dictating terms to the pit wall. Really, I have to say that Sergio Perez, I find highly vexatious because um, <laughs> this was one of those races where he executed so much of it really well to the point that I was actually writing on my notes for future podcasts um, this weekend that, you know, his second stint in particular was was very good. He made great progress. He was so consistent. And you think, oh, he's having a great race. And then at other times, and as, as in this case, immediately after I scribbled down those notes, he starts driving as if he ought to have come some sort of rubber belt around his car like they give people at arrive and drive karting events. <laughs> so, yeah, very silly. Uh, and he had the pace to get through, maybe not to get past Charles Leclerc in the time available without that little bit of an assist. Uh, it was a bit of a roll of the dice from Leclerc, but obviously he was thinking of you know his mechanics uh, wintering holidays in Tenerife rather than Cleethorpes. So <laughs> obviously Italians wouldn't be going there. I, I can't I can't think of a Italian seaside resort that you wouldn't want to go to in the winter. Uh, Rimini, what's Rimini like at this time of year? Who knows. Um, you know, it, it it was quite audacious, and the fact that Ferrari bought into it also good. It was desperation. If Carlos had been in the top ten and maybe ahead of Lewis Hamilton, it it might have worked. And the the problem you have is that when you end up in a situation where you're relying on misfortune to happen to other people in the last few events of any sporting season. You know, imagine you're into football or rugby and your team's bumping along the bottom for relegation and come the end of the season, you're starting to need other teams to lose to for your team to vault them. It's kind of like that. You, you as, as a competitor, you need to have put yourself into a position to do better before the end of the season so that you're not 
looking around waiting for other people to make mistakes or have bad things happen to them. Just thinking about this uh, decision from Charlotte Claire, I couldn't help but remember the 2016 finale in Abu Dhabi, which was for a time one of the more controversial endings to a championship until more recent events, I suppose, where Lewis Hamilton was backing up Nico Rosberg into the pack behind. They were first and second at the time. I think he needed Nico to finish fourth from memory to win the championship, ultimately couldn't do it. You think Charles Leclerc had it in him to go full dick dastardly like that and would it have even worked at this slightly revised Abu Dhabi circuit? Well, do you know, it might just have done, but with the the power of DRS on the new layout, maybe, maybe not, depending on tie life at the end. Like we saw um, Lewis Hamilton's um, desperate last lap lunge at turn nine on Yuki Tsunoda initially work and then him ending up having to give it a dab of oppo mid corner to avoid ending up um in in the former mangrove swamp uh, stage right so yeah i mean it, it works nicely for the promoter and formula one doesn't it because it delivers the the peak end effect that um formula one have been trying to engineer in into races with the new technical package and that sort of thing where the, the the psychology of the of the human mind works that you can theoretically sit through 50 laps of blah but provided the final eight build to a peak you go away thinking hey that was great um and and yeah so a little bit of drama especially in a dead rubber like this it it, it worked for me it 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 perked up people around the uh, media center certainly so i imagine the the viewers probably enjoyed it as well thinking about the meaningfulness of uh, second in the constructors championship there's the money element there's the pride element all that kind of stuff but really people are looking for a little bit of hope that maybe one of these teams can challenge red bull racing next season as you've already mentioned mercedes all new car for next year ferrari's thought to be making some fairly significant changes as well considering that while they have stepped forward over the course of this year still a massive gap to red bull racing to your mind which of these two teams and there are others of course contending for the role of closest to red bull racing is best place to maybe give us a, a fight for victories next season uh, you can't look far from ferrari because they're starting at a higher level and it depends on the extent to which they understand why this car has been so difficult because we've seen um them start the year with a car that was truculent it was unstable um the clerk was able to live with it science wasn't so they built a little bit of understeer into it they kind of blunted the edge uh to to make it a little bit less um cantankerous from that point on carlos science had a little bit of a purple patch and ended up winning the singapore grand prix the the next big update which was more of a performance improvement but one that made the car a little bit edgier again but raised the performance ceiling uh, really brought it back into Charles Leclerc territory and he's dominated the end of the season. So some people might argue with this contention, but I do think that Leclerc and Sainz are, if not absolutely the best driver combination in Formula One, they are among the best and certainly a nice overlapping skill set and the which is also complementary. So you have Science's smarts, Leclerc's raw pace. Very often, either one or two of them will deliver the great result Ferrari wants, even if Leclerc is kind of the number one. So I'd say that provided they can understand what's gone wrong this year and fix it for next year and deliver a car that will enable 
either or both of those drivers to make the most of it on a Grand Prix weekend. They are the big challenges. I think Mercedes face the the biggest difficulty in creating an all-new car. They've got a lot of catching up to do. And then you look at uh, McLaren and Aston Martin, uh, uh, very much a, a a season of opposites for those teams. Uh, Aston Martin started strong and then have failed to find much more performance with their updates. In fact, the updates very often haven't worked as expected. So that points to an issue there in terms of their simulation tools. Uh, McLaren, absolutely remarkable that with the same set of people just organized differently, They've able to silk persificate, silk persificate uh, what was a difficult car, that's probably the slowest on the grid, and turn it into a, a, almost a challenger for race wins. So, yeah, McLaren also, you know, my stouts in the paddock say a lot better organised in terms of the way the garage works, all the little functional things that you or I don't see, certainly the TV viewers don't see. They are much more of a crack organization. So you'd think that with Team Boss Mike crack, Aston Martin would be more of a crack organization. <laughs> but um, they, they, they also are uh, very well organized. For a long time, their team manager had scored more points than uh, Alpha Tori. Um, <laughs> but yeah, McLaren, much better organized uh, around their track operations, as well as having a better car. Also a great driver combination. Oscar Piastri has clearly has a lot to learn about getting the most out of tyres over a race stint, but the team absolutely back him to do it. You know, Andrea Stella in the post-race press conference, um, you know, just went golden talking about how great Oscar is. Um, they're thoroughly impressed, I think, not just with his um driving ability, but also his outlook, the way he works with the team. And you know, you've You've seen him in interviews. He is exceedingly low temperature, isn't he? He's so cool. He's very unflustered. So uh, definitely a potential future champion. Lando Norris, undoubtedly fast, but he has choked um, on occasions during this year. So that's something that he's going to have to go away and fix over the winter. So yeah, I'm, I'm thinking Ferrari and McLaren may be the biggest challengers next year. Um, with a bit of a question mark over Aston Martin and Mercedes. I think Mercedes have a great driver lineup in terms of the occupants of both garages. I don't want to incur the wrath of the Lance Stroll fan out there, but um, I do think they've got one great driver and one okay driver, Aston Martin, and they need two great drivers. Okay, I don't think Lawrence Stroll listens to the podcast anyway, so you're safe on that regard. To wrap this one up, there was one other battle for constructors' standings points. In fact, it was for the bottom four teams, but really we were looking at Alpha Tauri versus Williams. The two, I mean, if we compare McLaren Aston Martin, this is sort of the lower voltage version of that, I suppose. Alpha Tauri coming on strong late, trying to overhaul a Williams team that has scrapped points largely through Alex Albon's hard work over the course of the year. And Alpha Tauri was feeling pretty ambitious this weekend, especially after Yuki Tsunoda qualified to career best sixth and Williams couldn't crack Q3. Snowden then had a good start and even led the race briefly, even though it was largely to do with strategy. But then strategy also dropped him further down the order. He was one of the few drivers to try that one stop and ultimately where he finished and without Daniel Ricciardo in the points, the team fell three points short of its target. Considering 
the one stop was not very favourable uh, in the end in this race. Did AlvaTauri blow its chance here, having Yuki Tsunoda fin- uh, passed quite late by Fernando Alonso? I'm not sure they did. Um, I don't think there's enough pace in that car still, and it's very... Uh, it- <laughs> last race of the season very early days with the new floor they've put on and um thereby hangs a tail because of course there's an interesting conspiracy theory which i will preface with uh, a a quick theatrical rustle of the tinfoil hat that some people will be wearing i don't have any tinfoil to hand to make myself a hat but there is a theory um believe it if you want don't disbelieve it if you want that with them being shared ownership, there is an element of the AlphaTauri organization being used as a stealth development resource for the Red Bull Racing, the main factory team. And I know for a fact that at least one team principal has been off record briefing that this could be the case. Um, So that doesn't mean it's true but it means someone either believes it or wants other people to believe it. So be that as it may, it is a bit weird sticking on a new floor or the last race for a car. So there we go. That's the AlphaTauri for you. Um, I'm not sure they're expecting Yuki Tsunoda to achieve quite those peaks, his best qualifying performance ever in qualifying. Great grid position. Um, From there, a one-stop was a little bit eccentric, but... Great performance from him to actually make that strategy work. Starting on the mediums for a um, one-stop strategy was a little bit difficult. I suppose the logical choice, um, given his grid position, because if he'd put the hards on, he would have been vulnerable. He'd have just gone backwards. So he did really well to hold his own for a lot of the race. But then the last 15 laps, uh, he was about a second a lap slower than the cars behind. So he was really just clinging on. So it was pretty inevitable that Alonso would get him. Um, uh, Ricardo had a completely opposite race from a strategic point of view, two stopper with an early first stop to get him in clear air. And that really worked for them. That was actually very astute. So um, I think, yeah, hope for them. It's just a shame that they left it so late in yet another season where there's been tumult behind the scenes, hirings, firings, the team principal saying he doesn't believe, doesn't trust his own staff, all that sort of nonsense. They'll be looking to turn the page next year with new leadership and uh, a new look and a new name. I can't wait to see how many sponsors they cram into that name as well. It should be very exciting. And just as a final note on that battle, part of the reason Daniel Ricciardo couldn't score points, not only was it starting so far back and uh, one of these uh, visor tear-offs being stuck in his brake ducts, a problem that I feel like no one really could have solved by now if it committed its mind to it. Uh, but it was also because Logan Sargent held him up for a little bit in the middle of the race, one of those situations where drivers are deployed largely on a target rather than the overall race outcome because it was the last race. It was only a matter of a couple of points. Logan Sargent's still uncontracted, though, at Williams. What's your take on that situation? We're now after the race, and I always do hesitate to talk about this because you don't never know by the time the podcast is out, maybe all solved. We might have an answer. But in your mind, is has he done enough to be retained considering this is his rookie season and he is in a car that for various points this year has been among 
the slowest and sometimes more difficult? Yeah, I mean, lucky you uh, with a podcast where there's only a, a few hours, depending <laughs> on how often my Tourette's flares up. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, only a few hours between recording and, and publication, whereas you know, I, as the editor of a monthly magazine, um, just live in fear of that um, sort of the, the, the week between... Um, it, it's supposed to be four days between publication and um, it landing on our subscribers' doormats, but thanks to the British Postal Service being entirely suboptimal, uh, half of them seem to get it after it appears on the newsstands a week after it prints. But I just I, I live in fear of developments making us irrelevant in during that week. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they do. Sometimes the developments make you look exceedingly clever when you haven't been <laughs> at all. Um, so yeah, Logan Sargent, obviously a little bit of family money there. Um, but do feel free to Google, dear listeners, the the names and um, dip into the fantastically interesting soap opera further up the Sergeant family of uh, Papa Sergeant and Uncle Sergeant suing each other. Uh, Uncle Sergeant thinking that uh, all of the family money is being wasted on Logan's career. Slightly churlish, but <laughs> then again, his championship position and his inability to string together a fast qualifying lap on when the time comes without straying over track limits tells you that he's got a bit to learn. Uh, you have to ask who would... Uh, I, I was about to... Is, I was about to speak a sentence that ends with a preposition, so I'm going to recast <laughs> it in my, brain, in my brain. With whom would they replace him? It's, it's strange, isn't it? it? Because of the vagaries of the alliances of who's in who's... Um, young driver uh, ladder, Williams don't have anyone experienced or quick enough yet in their young driver ladder to replace him. And what have we got? Aston Martin have got last year's F2 champion warming the bench probably for another year. Um, They speak very highly of him. They'll have to uh, if they want to keep him. Uh, You have the new F2 champion, Teo Pochier, who made quite heavy weather of the F2 finale, it has to be said. Um, also aligned to another manufacturer organization. Same with Frederick Vesti, the uh, runner-up in F2. So, yeah, who who would you put in instead of Logan Sargent? Not Nick DeVries, maybe. Um, I, I, I can't see them... Um, looking much farther afield. I could be wrong. They might persist with him, but yeah, he's been a little bit disappointing. He's a he's a very personable and polite fellow who's good with the team. I think he's good with sponsors, decent with the media, but um, he is a little bit in the final analysis uh, what Bernie Ethelston used to call a brundle schmundle driver <laughs> in that he's kind of, um, kind of capable, but not really delivering box office and um, you could pretty much unscrew him as you would a light bulb and screw another one in that might shine a little bit brighter. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the state of play at Williams. They also have um, sacked off developments of their car from mid season. They've now got Pat Fry who started three weeks ago as chief technical officer, a little bit late to be shaping development of next year's car, but they're looking for a little bit of a reboot. And they're also ambitious and really a new lease of life under new team principal James Vowles this year. 
I think the thing for them is they want to get away from a mindset of surviving from race to race and looking towards future races. And I think they're already looking towards 2025 and 2026. So with that in mind, I would imagine that James Vowles is getting his ducks in a line for a really, really good driver to get in there in 2025 or 2026, which leads us to conclude that maybe Logan Sargent will get a stay of execution for the following season. A good answer for an unknown situation. Who knows what the situation is going to be by the time it's published. So I'm pleased to, no one will come out looking any Have I covered myself sufficiently? I think so. I think we've done well. I think we've done very well there. That's the end of the 2023 season. Ended much the way it started with Max Verstappen winning. And he did a lot of winning in between. Cotters, it's great to have you on the podcast to talk about the last race of the year with you. Thank you. It is always a pleasure. It's a shame we left it till the last one. Let's let's do it earlier next year. (laughs) Max Verstappen won the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix by 17 seconds, despite Red Bull Racing having not developed the car for months now, and despite him targeting the record for most laps led, not simply the fastest route to the flag. After a season of unprecedented domination, Abu Dhabi provided very little comfort that things will be markedly different in 2024, though the outcome of next season ultimately still rests with whether the chasing pack can rise to the challenge. Thanks very much to Stuart Codling for joining me to debrief the season-ending Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. And that's it for Formula One for another year. This was no classic championship, but with the campaign now behind us, it's important to recognise what we've all just witnessed. Greatness isn't always pretty or entertaining, but what Max Verstappen and Red Bull Racing have achieved, over a season as long and as gruelling as this, performing at such a high level week after week, is truly remarkable. It was unprecedented for a reason, but let's hope no team or driver can ever repeat it, for all of our sakes. That's it also for another season of The Strategy Report. Thanks very much to all of our guests for joining me over the year, and thanks most of all to you for listening. There are an awful lot of F1 podcasts out there these days. We certainly appreciate that you've chosen to spend some of your time listening to ours. But now it's time for the off-season and a much-needed break for the entire sport. My name's Michael Laminato. Stay well during the off-season and have a very happy Christmas, New Year and festive period, and I'll catch you in 2024. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.